Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, October 10th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film writers Kwai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So we, we got a, a bunch of news today. Let's, let's dive into it. First up, let's talk The Matrix 4, which has cast one of the stars from Aquaman. HD, what do we know? Yeah, yeah, Abdul Mateen II has been cast in The Matrix 4, which is set to see Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss reprising their roles as Neo and Trinity, as well as Lana Wachowski returning to direct. Uh, there is no word on what, who Yaya Abdul Mateen II will be playing yet, but there are rumors. There have been rumors that have been debunked that he'll be playing a young Morpheus. However, a HT, um, he is black, so he must be related to Morpheus, right? Yeah, it's like how every brunette woman is <laughs> must be Ray's mom in Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. So he is not playing young Morpheus, but according to uh, Variety reporter Justin Kroll, he may be playing a character who's connected to Morpheus. We don't know yet whether Lawrence Fishburne will be returning in the role of the character in The Matrix 4, but it seems feasible that he would, and if not, then... Perhaps um, Yayo Abdul Mateen II's character will be bridging that gap. Um, you, I mean, we have to assume that Lawrence Fishburne's going to return because, like, everybody else is returning. You think if Keanu is returning, he would be returning, right? Yeah, you'd think so, unless they have plans to uh, off Morpheus, perhaps, or, or have something mysterious happen, which is why we have a character connected to him potentially appearing oh, in the role. This could be the search for Morpheus. This could be uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens all over again. <laughs> yeah, and Morpheus will just be like on a deserted island uh, drinking milk. <laughs> um, what do you? What is your uh, feelings on... Abdul Martin, like, actually, when you say his last name, do you have to say both of the hyphen? I'm guessing you do, right? Yes, you yes. do, because it's hyphenated. Uh, what is your opinion on him? I really like him. I think he was so charismatic in Aquaman. I think I remember we had that uh, conversation where he should have, he kind of, 
felt like the real villain of uh, Aquaman, although his plot, <laughs> his narrative was actually a little bit not very connected to the overall plot. But he was just very charismatic and fun to watch. And uh, he's been appearing in everything. I remember seeing him in Us, who in for a very short screen time, but he also was uh, memorable in that. And then, of course, I got to see him in the new Watchmen pilot, which he played opposite Regina King. And was he's just showing up everywhere. And I'm excited to see him again. I think he's just a very got a very strong screen presence. And uh, I'm excited to see where he's going from here. Yeah. Well, excited he's going to be in uh, the new Candyman, too. Yes, oh, that's yeah. true. Well, excited to see him as uh, Morpheus's son in <laughs> Matrix 4. A joke. Uh, or maybe I don't. I don't know. Uh, Chris, uh, we, 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 you know, we've been talking about this Masters of the Universe movie for so long. Actually, probably before you started on at Slash Film, mm-hmm. I've been writing about this, uh, the chance of them making a live-action Masters of the Universe reboot for, I think, over 10 years now, actually. If, if I yeah. think of it right, like David Goyer was attached at one point. Uh, there's been a lot of people attached to it, and, and now it looks like it's finally happening, but might go straight to Netflix. Right. So uh, Sony has been trying to develop this since at least 2007, and it's it's changed hands several times. And now, you know, they, they've locked down writers, they've locked down directors, they've locked down a star, and at the moment it's slated for a March 2021 release date. However, there is now um, a report uh, over at THR, which comes from uh, quote unquote insiders who are saying that Sony is very seriously mulling over the idea of just pretty much dumping this onto Netflix rather than risk some sort of box office failure. Um, You know, Sony has, had sort of a weird year. I mean, they have, you know, they're connected to Spider-Man, obviously, so they have that going for them, but they also had the, you know, the new Men in Black movie, and that bombed. Like, no one no one wanted to see that. And so we're in this sort of weird landscape right now where anything that isn't, like, a superhero movie is sort of up in the air. Like, but, even but like Master of the Universe is a superhero movie. It's a guy with superpowers yeah. and a gigantic sword. I know, but people don't really, I don't think people think of this as a superhero. They think of it more of as like a fantasy thing, I think. That's what I think, at least. See, maybe they should have approached it like a superhero movie because Prince Adam is totally like, you know, Clark Kent without the powers. And then he gets the sword and he becomes the master of the universe. I guess. I just, it just seems like there's such a weird, I don't know, the the Hollywood landscape right now is very weird where, you know, even tried and true franchises aren't a sure thing and you know sony they want this to be a franchise but they're you know they're worried about releasing another dud and they can sort of get around that by just dropping this on netflix and it sort of makes kind of sense because netflix has um shira which is connected to masters universe and they have the upcoming kevin smith anime he-man so it was sort of fit in nicely with that and um, it, it looks like more and more studios are going to start taking this approach. I mean, Paramount already did this with uh, the Cloverfield Paradox, which was supposed to go to theaters, and they just ended up dropping it onto Netflix as sort of a surprise for um, at, right after the, after the Super Bowl. And uh, Paramount is actually developing a whole division that's devoted to sort of just off offloading movies onto <laughs> Netflix. 
So we've sort of come full circle here because, you know, for a while, studios saw Netflix as the enemy. And now they're realizing that, you know, streaming isn't going away. And they're sort of taking a if you can't beat them, join them approach where it's like, all right, we're not going to be able to beat streaming at their own game. Let's let's get in on this and, you know, start making money. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't see, you know, studios like Paramount making movies for Netflix is a bad idea. Um, I mean, obviously, they're most of them are probably going to be making movies for their own streaming service to try to entice people to subscribe to that. But is Netflix in danger after, like, you know, the Cloverfield paradox and now potentially this, like, as being seen as the play, the dumping ground of bad movies that studios don't want? It's weird because, you know, on one level, yes, they do have this sort of reputation for junk (laughs) like you know they have bright even though everyone watched that apparently but they you know but at the same time they also have really big prestige stuff i mean they had roma last year they have the irishman this year and marriage story so it's like i think they're sort of trying to have like everything over there at netflix where like yes they're gonna have junk but they're also gonna try and counterbalance it with these really well-regarded adult movies that probably wouldn't do well in theaters anymore just because that's the way things go right now but at least they're still getting made i mean they they gave martin scorsese his biggest budget ever to make the irishman and you know in my humble opinion it paid off but you know we'll have to see how everyone else reacts to it when everyone else is able to see it but you know it's like a give or take like yeah they're gonna have you know absolute dreck but they're also gonna have good stuff too at the same time, it's interesting to see Netflix also, you know, for years and years now, they've been trying to diversify their content so much and try to entice people to subscribe to Netflix. And now I feel like we're starting to see a change in that where they are trying to create content that will keep their current subscribers around. Like you mentioned how, you know, Netflix has She-Ra. They're going to have the, you know, the He-Man cartoon and now they're creating this. Like, I, I, I feel like, Everybody that's already in for like Masters Universe is probably already a Netflix subscriber, uh, but this will be more content for them to keep on paying that monthly fee, which is kind of interesting. But uh, let's move over to ABC. They're developing a TV series, uh, Inland, which is being adapted by Drew Goddard. Uh, what do we know about this, HG? Yeah, Drew Goddard is returning to TV for his next project. He's adapting an inland TV series based on the best-selling Western epic novel by Taya Obret, who wrote The Tiger's Wife. And this is part of his deal that he originally signed with 20th Century Fox TV, uh, but now has been migrated to ABC Studios uh, after the Disney Fox merger. And um, it's an adaptation for ABC Signature, which is the cable and streaming division of Disney TV Studios. So potentially you will be seeing it on this streaming service or a streaming service of some sort. Um, so it's uh, it's all seems up in the air right now, but uh, Inland is a, a Western epic that follows the two intersecting storylines of two characters, one of which is a frontiers woman who's waiting the return of her husband and sons, and the other of which is a former outlaw who is haunted by ghosts, literal and figurative. Have you read this book? I have not, but it sounds interesting. It sounds up Drew, Drew Goddard's um, al- uh, 
Alley. He, you know, was a writer on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel before he made his breakout feature debut with Cabin in the Woods and recently directed the um, Bad Times at the El Royale. So it's a a action series with a supernatural twist is definitely something that he uh, would be successful with. Is this something you think is right for ABC? Like, I feel like this sounds more like an HBO kind of. Maybe that's because I'm like in the mind of like HBO has Westworld, but I don't know. It does sound really ambitious for ABC, especially ABC Signature, which I'm still not quite sure what it is. It's it seems like something that is meant for streaming, so it's something that is very ambitious (laughs) and potentially very blockbuster size uh, going for a streaming um, platform. So I'm not sure how it will turn out, but I like Drew Goddard and I think that he has created really interesting and really compelling stuff. So I might tune in. Um, Maybe I'll check out the book. I've never, I actually hadn't heard of it until I was writing up this piece, but it seems like an interesting uh, series or interesting book. Sorry. Yeah. Um, let's move on. Let's talk about Angley's Gemini Man, which we talked about yesterday on the podcast during the water cooler. I, I think we were all not, uh, you know, huge fans of it. Uh, but uh, it turns out, you know, Angley shot this movie in a format that is not going to be widely available in theaters. Chris, what do we know? Right. So this is a little technical. I'll try to dumb it down for everyone out there, because even when I was writing this, I, can't, I had to keep checking notes to make sure I was getting this right. So here's the deal. Ang Lee shot this film in uh, 3D, 4K, 120 frames per second. The 120 frames per second is the high frame rate, which I think everyone is aware of. It's what, you know, the Hobbit movies were shot in. I think Avatar is maybe shooting in that, the sequels. So here, here's where things get complicated. Um, no theater in America is able to show this film in that exact format. Uh, the best uh, we can do here in the States is 3D, 124 frames per second, but in 2K. So everything is there except the 4K. Now, you know, if you don't know what this stuff is, that might sound like a trivial distance, but a difference, but you know, 4K and 2K, there is a, a big difference there in terms of quality and pixels and presentation and all that jazz. So, uh, you know, Angley, he went through a lot of trouble to shoot this film in this specific format. And apparently he went through all that trouble for no good reason, because no one is going to be able to show this film that way. Um, there are some theaters that will, will be able to show it in 4K, but not with the 3d high frame rate and so it's like there's you know there's nothing we can really do here the best you can do is there are 14 theaters in uh the u.s and and they're listed in our story that are showing it in 3d 120 2k so you know even that is sort of like a small amount of you know compared to all the theaters in the country so yeah you're sort of like damned if you do, damned if you don't here with this film. Um, you know, and I don't know. <laughs> how, how many theaters do you think are going to have this format available when Avatar 2 hits theaters? God, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I feel like James Cameron gets the, the exhibitors to, you know, update their equipment. 
Do you think James Cameron will ever even finish the Avatar <laughs> sequel? That's that's the real question here. Yeah. I feel like, but you know, we're like five years from now, we're gonna be like, oh, that still hasn't come out yet. What happened to Avatar two? Yeah. Uh, but by the way, yesterday on the podcast, um, I m- was talking about Gemini Man, and I made a. Uh, a little bit of an error, like a couple different bits of error. Uh, one of our listeners, John C., wrote in to correct those, and I, I want to just read them re- right here. Um, I mentioned that Marvel does this de-aging effect much better than what Gemini did, Man did with Will Smith's character, and apparently uh, what Gemini Man did is not the same thing as Marvel films where they're de-aging the actors playing themselves in Gemini man, they are actually completely creating a digital character. Uh, this person says it's similar to creating Alita in battle angel. So um, it's, it's a different process and that's probably why it looks a lot different. And the other thing uh, I probably said incorrectly was I said that I saw the first Hobbit film in 120 frames per second. That is incorrect. I saw the first Hobbit film in 48 frames per second. Uh, Yes. I think, the first 120 frame per second movie was uh, the other Ang Lee film. What is that? The halftime. Billy Lynn. Oh yeah. Long halftime walk. Billy yeah. Lynn's. No one saw this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways, so there's that. Uh, but if you have a 120 second theater around you, maybe you should check this out just to see what it looks like. Or if you, uh, maybe you shouldn't. So I don't yeah, know. Go, go see a good movie instead. There's some good movies playing right now. Go see that. Parasite. Yeah, Parasite. Yes, go see Parasite if that's playing anywhere near you. I don't even know if that's opening wide or not. It might be limited. Okay. I think it is. Let's talk about another cinema uh, luminary. Let's talk about Francis Ford Coppola, who is one step closer to making his passion, passion project Megaopolis. Uh, HT, what do we Thank know? You- I think it's Megalopolis, Megalopolis, but either way, it's a tongue twister. Okay. <laughs> yes. Megalopolis. Francis, yes. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola has uh, recently signed with one of the industry's largest agencies, CAA, in hopes that they'll help finance his super expensive futuristic movie that's been in the works for many years now. Uh, so he's recently joined the agency's ranks, um, and this will potentially help him get Megalopolis off the ground after nearly 20, 20 years. This is uh, his 212-page script, which follows an architect that tries to build a mini-utopia u- within a futuristic New York City. Um, so this is a, a film that he's been yeah, trying to get in the works for a while, and um, there hasn't been any updates specifically on this film yet. But with the signing uh, with CAA, this will hopefully be the first step in getting that off the ground. And for those who don't know, uh, a, a page of script time, it, it kind of equates to one minute of screen time. So 212 page script equates to like three and a half hour movie, probably, maybe. <laughs> so that's a long movie. That's probably what's kept him from making this for such a long time. But he also is a you know filmmaker who's made lots of long epic movies that are considered some of the greatest films of all time. Uh, why is it taking him so long to to make this, HG? I think it's just because it's such a technical, technically heavy movie um, because it takes place in a futuristic New York City. Uh, and it also has to do with um, 
the rebuilding of New York after a disastrous incident. It was written back in 2001, so the 9-11 attacks were really fresh in people's minds, and that ended up putting the script on hold. Uh, and I think it's just the ambition and the the grand scale of it all made it um, a hard project to get off the ground. Yeah. Uh, Chris, are you a fan of Francis Ford Coppola's work? Uh, I am. I mean, he hasn't done anything good <laughs> in a long time. I think like the last movie of his that I, I consider to be genuinely good is probably Dracula, which is like, 1992. Um, but, you know, he is, uh, you know, he, he sort of earned his reputation as one of the best filmmakers and, you know, some a lot of his early work, not just The Godfather, but, you know, The Conversation and yeah. Apocalypse Now, all that stuff, you know, they're some of the best movie, best American movies ever made. So I would love for him to have sort of like this this return where he comes back and makes a big epic and shows us all he still has it. But I it's just sort of like, uh, I'll believe it when I see it thing. I, I kind of have this theory that usually like, filmmakers start their careers like you know in film school making like these experimental films and then as they progress their careers they get more narrative and based and more uh story based uh, like you know uh less experimental i should say um and i feel like the northern california filmmakers like the george lucas and the francis ford coppola are going backwards in time do you know what i mean like in their mm-hmm. early careers they have made like some of the big like biggest films of all time that are considered you know that people look at for their screenplays and you know how to create like three-act structure and whatever you know they are masterpieces yeah blockbuster masterpieces and then later in their careers they've devolved or devolved makes it sound bad but they've taken a more experimental approach to their their careers which uh, i personally do not love but uh i don't know it's interesting that both of them have kind of taken that uh turn with their careers but um, anyways, OK, uh, let's talk about Joker, because uh, we're talking about that all week here. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding this film uh, with the, the violence, the you know, what, what does the film have to say? And also Todd Phillips is uh, can't keep his mouth shut and, you know, kind of uh, says some things that gets himself in trouble uh, that happened. What was it last week, Chris? Um, I think it was either last week or the week before. But. Yeah. What What did he say? All right. I'm not going to read the full quote because the you know I don't want to, but <laughs> I'm going to read. Here's how the begin. How, here's how the quote starts. Go try to be funny nowadays with this woke culture, and that's where I'm going to stop because <laughs> uh, just shut up, Todd Phillips. But basically, the the gist of his quote is. Uh, he, no one can be funny anymore because, you know, everyone's too woke and, and cancel culture and so on and so forth. Everybody's too PC, so you can't make right, a joke yeah. about anything. Right. But basically, his argument is the only way you can be funny is if you're offensive and we're not allowed to be offensive anymore. So there's no more comedy. That's that's uh, the, the Todd Phillips argument. And now, comedy is dead. Yes, R.I.P. Comedy. <laughs> yeah, uh, actor Mark Marin, who you know is a comedian. He runs a popular podcast that you probably may have heard of, and he stars in the Joker. Uh, disagrees with Todd Phillips. What, what what does he say in response? Right, and again, I'm not going to read the full quote because uh, Mark, Mark Marin's quote is kind of lengthy because he's one of those guys who really likes to talk. But basically, he calls bullshit on what 
uh, Todd Phillips is saying, and he, he boils it down to this where, you know, the only thing that's sort of like looked down upon now is punching down on people for the sake of being mean, basically, where it's like Mark Myron's argument is like, you can still be offensive if it's actually funny. Like if there's actually comedy in the offensiveness, then you can do that. But if you're just being mean for the sake of being mean, that's not really funny to begin with. And that's really what people have the most problem with. And I, I kind of think that's correct. Honestly, like, you know, it's kind of stupid to be like, ah, comedy is dead because there's plenty of great comedy out there right now. So, I, you know. So is it just the case that Todd Phillips is just a mean and sensitive person? I don't know. You know, I don't want <laughs> to. I don't know him on a personal level. I do think he has a very nihilistic outlook on things based, based on, you know, the Joker and, uh, you know, the, the Hangover movies, which are very mean spirited and that seems to be what he gravitates towards but you know he could be a perfectly nice person in in real life yeah um it's an interesting argument i mean this is something i i know todd phillips got a lot of flack for this but this has been an argument that like has been going on in the comedy scene for the last what like five years or something like this has been something that uh some comedians feel is like you know they can't go to uh, colleges anymore and stuff like that. Uh, like, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see what the future of comedy is because I definitely don't agree with Todd Phillips, but I, I do agree that people are getting more sensitive uh, to certain things. It's like, what can you make a joke about and what can't you make a joke about? But I think as a comedian, if you, it's your job to write jokes, you, you know, then you need to spend some time thinking about like you know is this a, an okay joke to make like is like what does this say about me as a person it, what does this say about us as a society like what what are we what what are we trying to say with this joke i mean i guess maybe todd phillips has a problem thinking about that in general yeah um but yeah so uh H, do you have anything to say to this argument dumb <laughs> it's yeah. No, I what I will say is that comedy changes as the society and that I think that the comedy that Todd Phillips grew up and was raised on uh, in the 80s specifically may have not been the most uh, amiable type of comedy <laughs> or the most um, legal in a lot of senses. So uh, I will say that it makes sense that he thinks this way. I think he's wrong. Uh, and um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it, Todd Phillips has made a career out of offensive humor, things that are like kind of over the top. Uh, what is like the most offensive thing in like The Hangover, Chris? Do you, can you recall? I can't. I mean, I probably I something honestly... to do with the baby, right? I'm sure I... there's some. Some really some stuff that today would be like looked really down upon. I mean, I I honestly barely remember that movie. I saw it in theaters, and that was it. I never even saw the sequels, but uh, I just remember it being particularly mean spirited, especially like Bradley Cooper's character is just like this huge like asshole through the yeah. whole movie. So I don't. Know, I think it's just there's a fine line you can walk, and there's you know. There's nothing wrong with being offensive if the offensiveness has something to say. That's sort of like the best way I can put it. Like, like you know, 
you gotta go back but way what if, back. What if the offensiveness says that I'm a racist asshole? Then that's bad, and you should not be doing it. That's really, I think that should be the line right there. If, if the joke is, look at how offensive and racist and sexist I am, then that stinks, and it's not really that funny, and you need to work on better material. Yeah, I think that's well said. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find the links to the stories we've mentioned on today's podcast linked in the show notes. You can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow.